Well, happy Father's Day, dads. We are so grateful for each and every one of you and, uh, and excited that you're here with us this morning. And I know that all of you dads said those very same things, right? Never, never, never in a million years would we say any of that stuff. Well, today, guess what? We're getting close to the end of our series on the life of Joseph. We only have two more weeks left. We got this week looking at Genesis 47 and 48. Next week will be in Genesis 49 and 50. And then in July, the month of July, we're going to be starting a brand new teaching series called Imperfect Relationships. And what we're going to be doing is diving into the three most important relationships in our lives. That is our relationship with God, our relationship with others within the community of faith, and our relationships with those outside of the faith, those that are far from God. And so we'll be beginning that series in the month of July, so go ahead and make plans to be here. It's going to be an incredible time uh, of understanding what those relationships are all about. Well, Genesis chapter 47 and 48 is really a story of reunion. It's the reunion of Joseph and his entire family. Jacob and the family have traveled from Canaan to the land of Egypt, and they're all reunited with Joseph in this moment. And we're going to see this, this, this reunion as, as his entire family come to Egypt, to the land of Egypt, and they settle there. And they begin to prosper there. And we, we don't know, I mean, we know there's several reasons why God sent Jacob and the nation of Israel to Egypt. But one of the main reasons, the, one of the primary reasons we discovered in Genesis chapter 46 and it says this, that, that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, we don't know why shepherds were an abomination to, to the Egyptians. But what we do know is that God used that fact in order to bring Israel to the land of Egypt and separate them from the Egyptians. The fact that they were an abomination to the Egyptians allowed little opportunity, if any, for the Hebrews to interact with or become assimilated to the Egyptian culture. So what we see is while in Egypt, God's people remain separate from the Egyptians. And it is that separation from the Egyptians that God used to maintain the, the distinct character and nature of his people. It was the fact that the people of Israel, Jacob and his entire family, were separate from the Egyptians while they lived in, in Egypt was what allowed them to not become like the Egyptians, but to maintain their distinct nature. And God used that to make them into a great nation. Now Genesis 47 is a reminder that though powerful, that though prosperous, Egypt, the land of Egypt, has nothing to offer the people of God, especially in light of God's promises. So let's look at Genesis chapter 47, beginning in verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. So Joseph's just introducing his family to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land. 
for there is no pasture for our servants for your servants' flocks in the, because the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now let us please, let uh, let it please your servant to dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, "Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle them." your father and your brothers, and the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you, if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So part of the purpose of meeting Pharaoh was so that God's people, the Joseph's family, could settle in the land of Goshen. Goshen was the, the, the furthest north part of Egypt. It was, it was close to the promised land. And God wanted his people to settle there so that they could remain separate from the Egyptians. And Pharaoh not only gives them permission to settle in the land of Goshen, notice what he does. He says, I want you, Joseph, if you can find some able men among your brothers, which if you remember, I mean, just several years ago in this study uh, in their lives, not we hadn't studied this for several years, but several weeks ago in our study, several years ago in their lives, these men, would there was not an able man to be found among Joseph's brothers. But Pharaoh says, listen, if you can find an able man, if you can find some guys within your family, they can take care of my livestock as well. So not only does God put the people of Israel in the land of Goshen where they wanted to be, he also has Pharaoh tell them, listen, you take care of my livestock because you are shepherds. And that whole theme of being a shepherd is prominent throughout redemptive history. Think about it. Moses, after he fled Egypt, he becomes a shepherd in the land of Midian. Then God sends Moses back to Egypt in order to shepherd God's people out of the land of Egypt during the Exodus. King David was a shepherd before he became king. The prophets throughout the Old Testament would call Israel's Israel's leaders shepherds. God identified himself as a shepherd. And one of the most beloved story or beloved pictures and images of who God is is found in Psalm 23 and is familiar to many of us. The Lord is my shepherd. See, that whole idea of shepherd is, is, a, is a powerful theme throughout the Old Testament, but it comes to its culmination in the New Testament. You see, Jesus was, was first introduced his birth was first announced to who? Shepherds. And scripture says that Jesus is the great shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. So the fact that the Israelites were separated from the Egyptians because of the fact that they were shepherds is a pretty big deal when it comes to redemptive history. And we see that played out in this text. Let's pick up in verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. That's a pretty odd statement, few, right? If you live to 130 years old, you're going to say, hey, yeah, it's been just a few years. But he says it anyway. It's been a few years. Uh, but anyway, he says that, um, that few are the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence 
And then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, the best of the land in the land of Ramesses, and Pharaoh, just as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all of his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now, what's funny here is that Pharaoh asked Joseph, or asked Jacob, how old are you? Listen, you and I can't do that. Like, you realize not to ask anybody how old they are, right? And men, if you're not, don't know this, never. Never ask a woman how old they are. Never do it. Listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to give you free advice. This is not part of the sermon. It's just, it's free. I'm not going to charge you for it. Every woman in this room is 29 years old. Every one of them. So you don't have to, now if you're younger than 29, then you don't count. But every woman in this room is 29 years old. So men, if you're wondering how old the lady sitting next to you or in front of you is, she's 29. You don't have to ask her. Just know that she's 29 and she doesn't look a day older than 29. Right, men? Right, men? Okay, good, good. I'm just making sure. I'm trying to save you a lot of grief. I'm just trying to help you guys out because I know that some of you will will inevitably ask somebody, how old are you? And it's just going to go, it's going to go bad. So don't do it. Don't do it. But that's what Pharaoh does. He asks Joseph, how old are you? And Pharaoh can do that because he's Pharaoh. He's the leader of the not so free world. He can do whatever he wants. But what's interesting in this text is that twice it says that, that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now this would have been incredibly odd to have Jacob bless Pharaoh because it was customary in those days for the superior person to bless the lesser person. So the person with the most status, the person with the most prestige, the person with the highest position would be the one to bless the one with the lesser position, the lesser status. And so Jacob, in blessing Pharaoh, is basically saying that he is superior to Pharaoh. Pretty interesting. Can you imagine Pharaoh going, wait, you're blessing me? What are you, who are you, you old codger? What is your problem? I'm supposed to be blessing you. I am the one with the status. I am the one with the position, but that's not what happens. Twice it says that, that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. But here's the reality, church. You and I have the same opportunity and the same privilege as Jacob, that we as Christians, as followers of Christ, are to be a blessing wherever we go and with whomever we come in contact with. It doesn't matter if you come in contact with someone who is your boss or someone who is above you in status and and whatever the world considers to be greatness. That doesn't matter. What matters is that you and I, as followers of Christ, have a covenant relationship with God. We have a special calling and an opportunity to be a blessing to the people in this world. Wherever we go, whoever we meet, we, as followers of Jesus, should be a blessing to others. So the question is, what do people think when they see you coming? They see you coming, they're like, oh, great, you're in the office, and they see you walking down the hallway, and they're like, man, here comes so-and-so, they are such a blessing to me. Or do they go, oh, no, here he comes. Oh, man, here she comes. You see, here's the reality. Some Christians are a blessing wherever they go. And other Christians, unfortunately, are a blessing whenever they go. Let us never 
be those Christians that are a blessing whenever we leave. And why does that happen? It's because so often we can become judgmental, holier than thou. We can look down on people because of their sin and their past and their mistakes. And when we do that, we lose the ability to be a blessing to others. And Jacob was a blessing. He was able to bless Pharaoh. And you and I should be a blessing wherever we go. That's why Jesus said that we, the way that we will be known as his disciples is by how we love. What greater blessing can we offer someone than by loving them unconditionally? What greater blessing can we give to someone than by loving them, forgiving them, offering them grace? And so we as followers of Christ have an opportunity to be a blessing. Well, the text picks up in verse 13. In verse 13 through 26, we're not, we don't have time to read it today, but what we see in this text is we see this, this downward spiral of the Egyptian people and the severity of the famine that they find themselves in. I'm just going to read verse 13. And verse 13 says, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. So we know that this famine was going to be for seven years. And this famine has occurred, and, and it's wrecking the land. So what happens in verses 13 through 26 is the Egyptians, uh, they first, first and foremost, they, they, they buy all the food they can with their money. So they run out of money. There's no more money for the Egyptian people. They spend all their money on food just to survive. And once the food is gone, then they trade in their livestock in order to buy food. So they give all their livestock to Pharaoh and the government so that they can buy food. Now it's interesting, isn't it? Who is in charge of Pharaoh's livestock? Jacob and his Israelites and God's people. So now they've gotten greater responsibility and now they're overseeing all of the livestock in the entire land of Egypt. But then there's still famine. The people still don't have food. So the next thing they do is they trade their land for food. So now Pharaoh has all their money. He has all their livestock. He has all their land. But the famine's not done. The famine still continues. And so as the famine continues, what happens is they end up offering themselves as indentured servants to Pharaoh in order to buy food. So think about it. In this moment, during this famine, the Egyptian people, the population has lost everything. They've lost all their money. They've lost all their livestock. They've lost all their land. They've lost the rights to their very persons. They have become indentured servants to Pharaoh. Now, look at verse 27 in chapter, in chapter 47. This is amazing what happens to the people of Israel. Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they did what? Gained possessions, and they were what? Fruitful, and they did what? Multiplied. This is the exact opposite of what is happening to the people of Egypt, isn't it? God's people are gaining possessions. They're being fruitful. They're multiplying greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Notice what's happening. As the people of Egypt 
are, are being depleted. As the people of Egypt are losing their rights, the people of God are gaining in, 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 in possessions. They're gaining wealth. They're gaining, uh, um, uh, they're growing in number. They're, all these blessings are happening to the people of God while there's this, this famine going on in the land of Egypt. So Israel in this time is gaining freedom. They're living in freedom and they're living in prosperity. And Jacob's family, because they were separated from the Egyptians, were living and multiplying in the land of Goshen and gaining wealth while the Egyptians lost theirs. You think this is going to cause any problems later on? Once the people forget about Joseph? This is part of the reason that the, that the Israelites eventually become slaves when we get to the book of Exodus. It's because as you can imagine... Once Joseph dies, once everybody forgets that Joseph was the one that saved them, there's resentment in generations that follow. And that resentment ultimately leads to the Israelites becoming slaves. Now there's an interesting side note. It says that Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. How old was Joseph when he was sold into slavery? 17 years old. So you see what God has done? God has allowed this trouble, this hardship that Joseph has experienced to come full circle. For 17 years, Jacob nurtured Joseph. And for 17 years in his old age, Jacob is cared for by Joseph. God in his grace allows Jacob to have that time with Joseph and Joseph to have that time with his father. But regardless of how good it is in the land of Egypt, regardless of the blessing that God has given them in Goshen, Jacob knows that that is not their final destination. He knows that is not the land that God had promised his descendants. And so what J Jacob does is he makes Joseph swear to him that he will not bury him in Egypt. Instead, he makes him promise that he will bury him in the land of Canaan. Look at verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die. Now, if you know, if you've been with us, you know that Israel and Jacob, the same person. Israel is his covenant name. Jacob was the name given by his father, Isaac. So Israel must die. And he calls his son, Joseph, and says to him, if now, if I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he says, Jacob says to him, swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So this chapter really ends with a reminder that Egypt is not their home. No matter how good things get in Egypt, no matter how much they're fruitful and how much they multiply, Egypt is not the home of God's people. This is not their home. And Jacob is saying, listen, I don't want to be buried here. I don't want to be, to be buried in the land of Egypt. Take me back to the land of Canaan. Why? Why did he want to be buried in the land of Canaan? Because that is the land God promised. So by asking to be buried in the land of Canaan, what Jacob is doing is showing us a huge act of faith. And here's what I mean. God didn't promise the land of Egypt. God promised the land of Canaan. Yet God's people are living in Egypt. So Jacob in this moment is saying, I have faith 
And I have trust that God is going to restore the land. That God is going to bring his people back to the land of Canaan. So the fact that he tells Joseph to bury him in the land of Canaan is an act of faith. He is demonstrating his faith by wanting to go back to Canaan. Jacob believes that God is going to make him into a great nation. And that that great nation will dwell in the land that God had promised, not in the land of Egypt. So he is, he is, he is putting his hope and his trust in God's promises. And that's what we see happening here in, in Jacob's life. Then chapter 48 picks up in verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. <clears throat> and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to see you. Then Israel summoned his strength, set up in the bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples who will give this land to your offspring and after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine. So what is happening? In, in chapter 48, we know that Jacob is nearing death. So Joseph takes his two boys and he goes to see, he goes to see his father, their grandfather. And in that moment, Jacob tells him, listen, I am going to adopt your sons, those sons that were born in Egypt, those son, sons that were born by an Egyptian woman while you were a slave here in Egypt, I am going to take those boys and I'm going to adopt them as my very own. What does that mean? That means that, jo, that the blessing of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now being passed on to Manasseh and Ephraim. They, they are being invited, adopted into the family of God. They are being invited into and adopted into the blessings of God. They will inherit the promises of God and become a part of the covenant family. Even though they were born in Egypt, even though they were born by an Egyptian woman, Jacob is saying, listen, I am adopting them as my own. And then he reminds Joseph of the promises of God. When Joseph and his sons get there, dad sits up, gets all the strength that he can, and he goes, listen, remember, God has promised to make us a great nation. God has promised to give us the land of Canaan. And God has promised to make us a blessing to all people. So he reminds them of this blessing. And then he commences to bless the two boys, Jacob's sons. And it picks up in verse, um, in verse 13. Listen to what it says. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hand. So what you have happening is you have Jacob crossing his hands like this to bless the two boys. So Joseph puts him in birth order to get the blessing. Jacob crosses his arms and blesses him in the opposite direction. And it says, and, and he stretched out his hand. And then verse 15, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, 
the God who has made, who has been my shepherd all of my life, long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. In them let my name be carried on. So do you see the lineage, the promise of God being carried on through these boys? These boys will become part of God's the, of the twelve tribes of Israel later on, as if you if you study this further, let them be let them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now look at verse seventeen. But when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he's like, "Well, no, God, no, Dad, you can't do that. Don't bless the, don't cross your arms. Bless them based on their birth order." And Joseph said to him in verse eighteen. Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But Jacob refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, the younger shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So what is this whole idea of this crossing of hands? Why did Jacob do that? Why did he bless him in that way? I think part of the reason he does that is to show us that birth order has no bearing on covenant blessing in God's God's economy. That just because you were first born doesn't mean you automatically get the right of the covenant blessing. Think about it. Who was Jacob's firstborn? Reuben. Who received the covenant blessing? Judah. So the lineage of Jesus goes through Judah, not Reuben. So God is showing us that the birth order is not the deciding factor in covenant blessing. And we see this played out even greater in the New Testament. And here's what I mean by that. In the New Testament, we, we clearly see that salvation is not based on the family you were born into. Salvation is not based on your good works. Salvation is not based on on what type of person you are. Salvation is not based on any of that. It is not based on works. It's not based on deeds. Salvation is based upon God's grace and His election of each and every one of us alone. That's it. God doesn't choose us based on our merit. There is no merit-based salvation. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot work your way to salvation. You cannot do enough good deeds in order for God to say, okay, I'll let you into eternity. You and I are only received into eternity through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so what we're seeing in the Old Testament is the same thing we see in the New Testament, that our salvation, our covenant blessing is not based on anything you and I can do. It is based entirely upon God's grace. It is based entirely upon God's mercy. We can't do anything to earn salvation. We can't do anything to make God love us more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you have done in your past or ever will do in your future that will make God love you less. God doesn't love you based on what you do or don't do. God loves you based on His mercy and His grace alone. 
So we're seeing that very principle laid out in the Old Testament. Because if every time the blessing of the covenant was passed down through the firstborn, guess what? We would be here today saying, well, how can I measure up? I wasn't the firstborn. How, how can I be saved? How can I receive salvation? That's why God throughout the Old Testament constantly goes against the custom of birthright through the firstborn. And he does it to show that it is entirely his choice and not ours. And the same is true in our salvation in the New Testament and today. It is not based on anything you and I can do. We cannot earn salvation. Look at verse 21 in chapter 48. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you. And God will bring you again to the land of your fathers. What is he saying? It's a statement of faith, isn't it? We know that Jacob dies in Israel. We also know that Joseph dies in Israel. What is Jacob saying? He's saying, listen, one day God is going to keep all of his promises. God is going to be, he's going to bring out the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He's going to give them the land of Canaan. And so Joseph, think about this. Joseph has spent four decades living in Egypt. Forty years of his life have been spent in Egypt. The last 20, almost 20, half of them, 17 years, have been spent reunited with his father and his family. But think about it. He has not been home to the land of Canaan in 40 years. Think about if you if you go back home to where you were raised. Do you think it's different? you think it's changed? Like, I barely can remember the street that I lived on. Right, I don't. I can't remember the houses, the neighbors' houses next to me, and what, and and all that type of stuff. Well, this is what this would be. Joseph. I mean, he he would have his his memories of the land of the land of Canaan would be faint at best. But what I want you to notice is that his memories and his knowledge of the promises of God are as vivid as ever. Why? Because Jacob, his father, continually reminds him of God's promises. He reminded his grandsons and his son just a few verses earlier. Now he's reminding him again, which just shows us the importance of us dads reminding our children of the promises of God. Such a great picture of how us as fathers have the opportunity and the responsibility, regardless of how old our children are, regardless of how old our grandchildren are, our responsibility as fathers is to point our children to Jesus Christ. It's to remind our kids of who God is. It is to point them to, to the love and the promises of our Heavenly Father. And that's what Jacob's doing. He's just reminding the boys. He's reminding Joseph, listen, this is what God has promised. He is going to bring you out of the land. He is going to deliver us into the promised land. Just keep that in mind and keep pressing forward, knowing that God always keeps his promises. And fathers, that is our responsibility to do that with our children, to remind them over and over and over again of this greater reality in each and every one of our lives, and that is that God always, always, always keeps his promises. It was true back then, it is true now, and it will be true for all eternity. That God, There's not a promise that God has made that he doesn't keep. Now, like we've been doing throughout this series, we, we've been talking about just some key takeaways at the end uh, of each message. 
And so I've got, I've got several key takeaways from this text. And the first one is this, that God will provide. God will provide. We see this happen in the, in the people of Israel, don't we? We see that, that God has not forgotten his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's people are his covenant people regardless of where they find themselves. And so what happens as the, as the Egyptians run out of money, as they sell their livestock, as they sell their land, as they even sell themselves in, to become indentured servants, God provides for his covenant people. And the truth, that truth remains just as true today as it was back then. God provides for each and every one of us. In fact, Paul put it this way. He said, my God shall supply all of your needs, every need of yours, every one of your needs, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God will still provide for each and every one of our needs. Now, God doesn't promise to make you rich and famous. I know that hurts some of you, makes you upset. God never promised that. But what God did promise is that he will meet all our needs. It doesn't mean he's going to meet everything we want. But God will meet every single one of your needs. In fact, Jesus put it this way. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we wear or what shall we, what shall we drink? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. I feel like running up some stairs. <laughs> For those of you watching online, we just had the Rocky theme. You may not have heard it, but it was fantastic. I am watching Rocky and Apollo Creed this afternoon. That's my Father's Day, folks, I'm telling you. But <laughs> let's go on. So Jesus said, don't be anxious about what you eat, drink, wear. The Gentiles seek after those things. But listen to this. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows your needs. He knows what you need. But listen to verse 33 in, in Matthew 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, seek first my kingdom. Seek first my righteousness, and God will supply all of your needs. God will meet your needs. Why? Because he knows that you need them. God knows what you need better than you know what you need. So what does he tell us to do? He says, by faith, seek me first. Put me first. Put me before everything else. Seek my righteousness in your life more than anything else, and I will supply all of your needs. That's the first takeaway. The second one is this. Our focus and our hope is in heaven. Even though God was providing for Israel, even though God was, they, was blessing them, they were fruitful and they were multiplying, Jacob's focus and the family's focus was not in Egypt. It was in Canaan, the land that God had promised. May you and I have those same eyes of faith that Jacob did. We can thank God for the provisions he gives in this life. But we have to realize that this world is not our home. This world is not our focus. Our focus and our hope and our home is in heaven. Our hope is in the promised land of eternity. Jesus has gone before us to prepare a place for all of his disciples. That's the home that we must desire. Paul said it this way, For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. How many of us have that attitude? 
that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Do we live life in light of our death? That's what Christ calls us to, to live our lives here on this earth in light of our death. What does that mean? We live in light of eternity. We live on mission with Jesus. Paul went on to say, I'm hard-pressed between the two. He's saying, I don't know which one to choose. Do I live as Christ? In other words, I'm going to live my life for Christ above all things. And to die is to be with Christ, and that's gain. That's better than anything this world has to offer. And Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. I can't decide which one I should do. But then he goes on to say, my desire, listen to this, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. Listen, church, what is your desire? What are you longing for? The things this earth can offer us? Or to be with Jesus for all eternity? That's what Paul's saying. He said, listen, my desire is to be with Christ. Remember, we are in Egypt right now. This land, this earth, this place is not our home. And so we must live in light of eternity. Seeking first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness. Yeah, God will give us blessings in this earth. God will provide for us in this earth. But this earth is not our home. We must look forward to the redemption of our bodies and our full adoption as God's children in the days to come. Which leads to the third and final takeaway and it's this. God has adopted us into his family. God has adopted us into his family. Paul said to the church in Galatia, he said, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Listen to this. So that, this is why God redeemed us, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are adopted as sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts saying or crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Listen, this is the message of salvation in the New Testament. That you and I have been adopted into God's family through the death of burial and resurrection of jesus christ and we have been given full rights as children of god listen when you adopt a child that child receives the same rights and the same privileges as a child that is born to you and what god is saying to us is that you and i have been given the same rights and the same privileges and the same promises that are Jesus Christ. We are adopted heirs of God. We are like Ephraim and Manasseh. We have been adopted into the full covenant blessings of God. Think about this. You and I were outsiders born outside the family of God. We were full of sin, far from God, but now, through God's grace, He 
has given us opportunity to enter into his kingdom, to become full participants in full heirs in the promises of God. When you and I come to Christ, we are adopted as God's children. And we receive all of God's blessing and all of God's mercy. That is how much God loves you. You may be sitting here saying, well, there's no way God loves me that much. Yes, he does. And the way he proved it is by sending his son, Jesus Christ, as a gift for your salvation and for my salvation. If you ever wonder how much God loves you, just go look to Jesus, whom he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How does that happen? It happens through the adoption that comes from knowing Christ. We were adopted into his family. And some of you this morning may be here, maybe watching online, and today you have had the, the, the need to come to Christ and be adopted as his child. Maybe you're saying, you know, I, I can never live up. I can never be good enough. Well, the good news is you don't have to be. God never asked you to be good enough. God never asked you to do anything to earn salvation. He says, just come to me and I will make you into an adopted child of mine. And so if that's you, today surrender to him. Give your life to him. Acknowledge your need for him. And when you do, God says, I will make you a child of mine. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the privilege and the opportunity that we have to be your children. God, you have allowed us to be adopted into your family so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. We can have intimacy and relationship with you. We can have mercy and grace because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And Lord, we thank you that we can be your children, that we can be adopted into your family. And I pray for anyone watching online or anyone in this room today that's never received you as their, as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day. That today they would say, you know what, God, I want to be your adopted child. I believe that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is enough for my salvation. And Father, for those of us who are followers of you, who already know you, Lord, I pray that we would live in light of our death that each and every day we would die to ourselves take up our cross and follow you that the mantra of our life would be as Paul's for me for me to live as Christ and to die is gain and Father we thank you for how you provide and how you work in each and every one of our lives how you reveal your goodness and your grace to us Help us never lose sight of that. Never take that for granted. 